to say about these, this story. And I just want to give a basic introduction. If you recall, right, when we spoke about Sefer Shoftim, we divided Sefer Shoftim up <coughs> into three sections. The first section was the introduction, chapters one and two, sort of setting out the problem with the, the, the era of the judges, which was that um, the Jews didn't finish their conquest and they were surrounded by uh, degenerate and corrupt pagans. And section two, which was the chronological history of the judges, the, the bulk of Sefer Shoftim, chapters Gimel 2, Tetzayin, are the story of the various tribes. We went through them, Asniel, <coughs> Adniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gidon, Gidon's son, who is not exactly a hero, Yiftach Shimshon. This is the bulk of the book. The last five chapters, 17 through 21, is the third section of Sefer Shoftim. And we have to take a pause and try to understand what are these five chapters. Those five chapters are two stories which show the, the real mess that Sefer Shoftim uh, describes, the Tkufas Shoftim was. Now, the two stories are called, <coughs> in the words of Chazal, Pesel Micha and Pilegish Begiba. Today, we're going to start with Pesel Micha. Pesel Micha really has two parts, chapter 17 and chapter 18. Um, they're two parts of the same story, but they're little separate stories. And the, the last three chapters are the story of the Pilegish Begiba and uh, the disaster that follows that. A number of comments about these two stories and by way of introduction to these five chapters. Number one, these stories are not in chronological order. It's not that Shimshon dies and then we have Pesel Micha Pelegish Begiva. There is a lot of um, uh, debate among the Chazal of where these things happen and when they happen. <coughs> I shouldn't say where, but only when, when they happen. The general understanding of Chazal and Rashi is that these stories happen at the beginning of Tzkupas HaShoftim. In other words, either at the time of, of Asniel or even before Asniel. The, the dissenters are Radak and the Barbanel, who feel, the Barbanel thinks it happened in, in the time that Shimshon was incarcerated, which we don't know how long that was. And, um, and the doc says it was after Shimshon and before the, uh, the leadership of the, the Kohen Gadol Eili. So we have a little bit of a debate here. What's the problem? The problem is the, the stories, the stories are not related to any event that we have already talked about. They're just sort of general stories that happen out of order. The, the overwhelming opinion of the Chazal is that this is actually, um, actually happened before. If that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves, why are we learning it after? And it seems that we have to stop a moment and understand the whole purpose of Sefer Shoftim. So Sefer Shoftim is really a lead in 
to the story of Shmuel Hanavi and the introduction of the kings. And since Shmuel is the, the, the one who writes Sefer Shoftim, of course, all the Nevi'im, uh, all the Sifrei Nevi'im were written by Nevi'im and they were written with divine inspiration. And it was not like a story that Shmuel made up because how would he know? He wasn't there at the time, he wasn't born yet. But he, there is a certain um, direction that Shmuel is taking here. And one of the ways we see that direction is that these five chapters have a refrain as if it's a, like a song. And how does it work? We could look here, all right? In Pasig Bav, in chapter 17, this is the first time we see this refrain. We will see it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was straight in his own eyes. This Pasuk appears in different forms. It's in chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 25. So we have four times, four times in the space of the five chapters. It is really a mantra, goes on. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was straight in his own eyes. And it becomes as if it's like an answer to the question of the stories, which become more and more weird and outrageous. <coughs> and we start understanding that really, there's a tremendous amount of lawlessness here. And the, the Navi is saying, if there had been a king, if there had been some sort of, let, let's leave the word king out of it. Let's just call it a leader. You cannot have a nation that has no leader here because then everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And um, I heard an interesting a discussion of this issue from uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag uh, from the Gush. And he spoke about the, the uh, the Chumash that tells us to uh, have a king. If you look at the Sefer Barim in Parsha Shoftim and Sefer Barim, it says, Shoftim, Shoftim, you will put officers and judges. Those are the judges, not like the judges in this book who are leaders more than judges, but regular judges. But when it comes to setting up a king, it says, eh, you come into the land and decide what a king, so this I do it. <coughs> And he has an interesting uh, theory. He says that monarchy was the government of the times, let's say. And so if you feel that like you wanna be a nation, right? And to be thought of as a nation among the other nations, then you too should have your method of government like others do. In those days, everyone had a monarchy. Today, it might be democracy. It's a very interesting theory that he has. But the bottom line is there's no king. And that means there's no leader. And therefore we have to think that these, these stories actually didn't happen when there was a judge. Or perhaps since the judges are some local, maybe the judges were in one place and not in another place. It's impossible to answer this question. But we always have to remember that in a Tanakh, Melech is also a code word for Kaddish Baruch Hu. There was no king in Israel, symbolically means God was having a hard time being present in this nation. Now, 
other things that characterize this section is that if you remember, we had the cycle. It, none of these stories fit the cycle. That's one other important thing. And then there is a, um, a lack of like good guys. Like there's no good guys in these stories. I'm warning you. Chapter 17 and 18, the story of Pesalicha, <coughs> there is a sort of sardonic satirical humor. But the last few chapters are just kind of a horror story. Just like, yuck. So um, it, it's definitely a downer. Now, <coughs> you might want to divide them up into two types of sins. The sin of the idol of Bicha was a sin by Adam Mako. And the sin of Pelegish Bagira was a sin Bain Adam Mahabero. However, it doesn't work. It's a little simplistic because there are many problems Bain Adam Mahabero in the story of the idol of Micha and plenty of uh, problems Bain Adam Mahabero in the story of Pelegish Bagira. So it doesn't work. But it does, these stories do bring out all of the corruption, all the problems, all the things that are messed up in the story in the time of the Shoftim. And uh, one more comment about this <coughs> is that when we when we see the stories that we have here, we learn the importance of having good leaders. And um, another thing that Rabbi Liebteg says, which I find fascinating, is in chapter eight. In chapter eight, we went through the story of Gidon. And Gidon is an amazing leader, and he leads the Jews to victory, and he deals with the, with the revolt of the Bnei Ephraim with tact, with diplomacy. He puts down the rebels in Sukkot and Penuel. He's got it together. He's good. And the people come to him and they say, you be our king. Gidon, we love you. Be our king. You and your children. And they offer him kingship. And he, in a very high minded manner says, I will not be your king, God is your king. And that's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. What more could you ask for from a Jewish leader? God is your king. And this is definitely an issue that the Jews have, that they, they don't understand that God is the ultimate king. And that's one of the, the lessons that Shmuel tries to bring across in Sefer Shoftim and Sefer Shmuel But if you look at the results, this is what Rabbi Liebteg says, which I find very, very, very interesting. It, did he make the right choice not to be the leader? What happens when Gidon refuses? We get his rotten son, Abimelech, who makes trouble for a few years until he gets killed. Then we have Yiftah. He's like the lowest of the low in terms of the leaders. We, he's just like problematic, civil war, you know, killing his daughter, little things. And then Shimshon, who was Bechlal, like just completely out of the box. So did Gido make the right choice? That's, that's a very interesting issue that he raises. So let's go into the, so this is, I guess, our first lesson is that um, when a, a group or a nation does not have good leadership, we get into trouble. Okay. Now we look at this, this uh, particular um, version of this, the parak. You see, it's a very short parak. There's only 13 sukkim, and it's, it's basically 
in two parts. The first part is a story of Micha, and the second part is the story of the lady. So let's go over here. Pasuk Aleph, by he ish miharefrayim shmo Micha. We first meet Micha, he's from Harefrayim. Savir Laniach, it is logical to assume that he was of the tribe of Ephraim, although we're not told. But Micha, Michayu is called Michayu at the beginning, and pay attention to this because this is a grand name. This is a name that contains God in it, right? This is Yemriyahu, Ishayahu. This is a great name. <coughs> so we can assume Shmo Michayahu, this is usually a type of description of a good person, right? Pasuk Bet. Now, this pasuk is downright funny, okay? We are thrown immediately into the bizarre world of Micha and his mom. And he says to his mother, you know, Ma, you had a thousand hundred pieces of silver, which is a lot of money. You will recall that Dalila gave over Shimshon when she was bribed with this amount of money from each one of the Swanim. So it is a sort of thematic connection. It's bad money there, it's bad money here. Remember, Ma, you had this 1,100 pieces of silver. It was taken from you, right? And you cursed, you cursed. And you said that in my hearing. I heard you curse the person who took that money? Oh boy. <laughs> he didn't like that curse. So what does he do? He says, I took it. But oh, his mother says, Oh, my son should be blessed by God. So again, we are not given any introduction here. We're just thrown into the story, and it's a really weird and wacky story. Because what's going on? He has taken money from his mother. So he, we, we see that although in Pusik Aleph, we give him a title that's a, you know, generally understood to be a righteous person title, Michahu, when we look at this story, he's a thief. And he's not only a thief, he stole the money from his mother. Like, you know, that's terrible. And why does he decide to confess? <coughs> because she was so angry that somebody stole her money that she cursed them, right? You know, and she put some kind of a hex on the person. And, you know, what you have to understand also is that the, the ancients were very, very careful about curses and blessings and vows. This was serious stuff. So when Micha hears his mother cursing the person who stole the money, He's like, wait, 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 I don't know if you want to curse the person because it was me. I took it. And she also, because she's a good mom, she is, she doesn't want to curse him. So she says, Baruch Hashem, my son should be blessed. In other words, let's just, you know, get rid of the hex. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just find it funny. Okay. And in other words, the curse should not take effect because I am now counteracting it with a blessing because now she sees that Micha is the one 
who took the money. Okay, this is very difficult, very strange. Okay. And um, what do we make of this? <clears throat> um, difficult, difficult. But up until now, we've seen that she, the mother, is talking about God. Baruch B'nil Hashem. So let's hold that in our minds. Basigimel. Bayashavit elapumei hakesef li'imo. Batomer imo. Let's stop for a second. He takes, he's done tshuva. He gives back the money to his mother. Batomer imo. Hakadesh hikadashti et hakesef l'ashem. Miyadi levni l'asot pesel u'masecha. Batashi benulach. Hold on now, we're gonna, gonna get it. Hold on, it's a weird ride here, Chris. It's gonna get weird, okay? She, he gives the money back to her. That's his chuba. He's sorry he took the money here, mom. I'm giving it back to you. And his mother says, I have consecrated that money to Hashem. I'm gonna give it from my hand to my son. And I want you to take the money and make a pesel and a masecha. And now I'm giving you the money back. What did you just say? Okay. <laughs> yes. First, she says, I consecrate it to God. And then she says, and now I want you to make an idol and a masecha. So what's a, what's a pesel? What's a masecha? So a pesel is a stone image. Pasal, right, is uh, made out of stone. And a masecha <clears throat> is made out of metal. And these were forms that were used for idol worship. So we right away see the, the, this mom and son are, they're a little off, sorry. <laughs> um, the son is a thief, he steals from his mother. And the mother pronounces this great pronouncement, the money, I sanctified it to God, and yet we're gonna make an idol out of it. So. The the Mephoshim have a really uh, interesting time with this. We'll, we'll I'll just proceed with the story so so then we can come back and sort of try to figure it out. Pasik Dalit. Okay, and he returns the money back to his mother. So you have to pay attention here because this money keeps going back and forth. First, he steals the money from his mom. And then he returns the money because he doesn't want to be cursed. And then she says, okay, let's take this money and do something from with it. Let's do something religious with it. Make a pestle. She gives it back to him. And he gives it back to her. So what's going on here? And his mother takes 200 pieces of silver and she gives it to Itzoraif. And Itzoraif is a, a smith of some kind, like there's all different types of Torfim, and they take me the metal workers. And he took the 200 and he made a pestle. He made a, a, an idol and he made a graven image, um, uh, metal. And it was in the house of Michaihu. <coughs> so now we have to ask ourselves what, what are they doing here? Is this, are they, is this a religious thing? Like, how do we understand a woman who says, I've consecrated the money to God, and then she takes it, turns around and says, let's make an idol. And I think it's extremely important to understand that 
we are being told this story for a reason. In other words, it's not just, you know, weird, satirical, you know, strange joke here. We are seeing people who are so confused that they haven't got it straight who's God and who's an idol. And the Mepharshim have a lot of trouble with this. So one of the things that we um, should look at, okay, um, here, this is the Radak. Lo micha right? In other words, Radak says, what is all this giving back and forth? What's the deal? And Radak says, Micha didn't want to do it. He's like, uh, you know what? I don't think so. You take the money. I don't really want to do it. She wants him to bring the money and make the idols. And he's like, no, no, I don't think so. So he's reluctant. And the Malbim has a similar uh, thought, right? Uh, he says, Michad Lorat Salio Gizbar Abodazara, Lohiskin Laso Pesamaseka. Bevadai, Malbim elaborates, Dibera Liba, Shalota says, he spoke to her, so, oh, really, do you want to do this? We shouldn't do this, right? And there is a problem, like, but in the end, in the end, she convinces him. The Malbim says, that's why she only used 200. If you recall, it was started with 1,100 pieces. What happened to the other 900? So the Malbim says he was able to convince her not to spend the full amount on this idol worship stuff, only a little bit of it. But he couldn't talk her out of the whole thing. And like, what is she doing here? What, what are we supposed to understand with this? So the Chazal basically say, it's completely out of worship, completely out of line, they're completely off. But it's not so simple because <coughs> we talked about, you know, when Gidon was told to fight the idol worship, he was destroying the Asherah and the Temple of the Baal. There is no mention of Baal in the story. There's no mention of the Asherah in this story. There's no mention of Ashtoreh or any of the other gods that we met, Dagon or Kamosh or any of these people that we've heard about that, the, that were common in that time. It's as if the idols that they're setting up are really for God. And so we have to take ourselves back in time to the story of the Egel Azahab, the golden calf, coming up soon in the Parsha, a few weeks, and understand like what, what are they thinking? What, what's the plan here? And why do they do the Egel Azahab? So in the story of the Egel Azahab, many of the Parshim say they were just completely off. They were just completely off. Like, you know, they're just going for an idol instead of, you know, connecting to God. But the Kuzari in particular, explains it in a very uh, beautiful way. Uh, <coughs> he says, they had just experienced national revelation, the amazing uh, connection to a Baruch that happened at Sinai. 
And then Moshe disappears. So there's a couple of things going on here. They want to connect to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, right? And Moshe isn't there, so they need a connector, right? And they need something because they're afraid that the inspiration and the revelation that they had might dissipate and it would be, you know, they would lose the, that, that connection. So the Kuzari explains that it is actually a, an attempt to worship God. It was a mistaken attempt. It was wrong. And it was a lot of things that God said not to do. However, there is a, an attempt to connect with God. Now, when we look at this story, right? And, you know, it's sort of hard to like uh, give them a pass because what are you doing? Like, what are you guys doing? And all God ever says is stop, don't worship idols. And, the, you know, all over the, the Torah, don't make a pestle, don't make a masecha. And it seems that they find something in that, not out of a desire to be like the nations and to be with the Baal and Ashtoreth, but out of a desire to connect with that Kaddish Baruch So this is the, the idea of the Kuzari. But in the Gemara, let me see if I can find everything for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, here. Okay, I, I am sorry, this is not the one I wanted, but the Gemara talks about how the, um, the words of the, of Hashem's name in the story of Micha are not considered really Hashem's name. In other words, when you see Hashem in the story of Micha, is it, you know, if you see Yud Kevavke, is that Hashem, you know, capital G or just a little G? And that's something the Gemara says, basically, I'm not actually finding the source for you, but basically they're saying that this, this, in this text, chapter 17 and 18, the conclusion of the Gemara is there are no, uh, there are no Kodesh words of God, except at the end of chapter 18, where I'm talking about the Beit Elohim, in Shiloh, which is the Mishkan. And everything else here, we're not really talking about God. But the Radak, okay, I'm not gonna find it for you because we have to move along. But the Radak has a problem with this. He says, that if, if her intention and his intention is to serve God, then you know the question is, can you erase the name of God in this story? And the Radak is too nervous to do that. He says, you know, I understand the Chazal said that this is not really God's name because it's a Rodasara, but is their intention to be serving God? And so we, we're in the story of complete and utter confusion. And um, let's go back, let's go ahead. Okay, so he, he makes this, oh, I lost my mouse, okay. Um, uh, right, Pasuk Dalit. He gives the money back and he takes the 200 and she makes the Pesach Masecha. The Malbim comments here, Pasuk 
let's just do Pasuk Hay, then I'll tell you. Baha'ish Micha Lo Beit Elohim. In other words, the Chazal would say that that's not really, that I really shouldn't say Elohim because it's really about Zara. But I'm with the Radak. I don't want to take any chances. Vayas Eifu B'Shrafim, Vayamaleyat Yad Echad Mibana, Vayihilo L'Kohe. And the man Micha made a house of God, and he made an ephod, and he made trafim. Vayamaleyat Yad means to initiate to instruct. He instructed one of his children to be for him a Kohen. So the comment of the Malbim is here. Me'az Avera goreret Avera Right? And notice here the Malbim says, Ha'ish Micha. Micha has lost the appendage of God's name, which was at uh, the beginning, we see here in Pasuk Aleph, Michahu, in Pasuk um, Dalit, the, the pestle is in the house of Michahu. In Pasuk Hey already, he's lost Hashem's name, and from now on, he's only Micha. And the mom says, once you take, once you take the pestle and put it in your house, once you take a Nemunat Fela, a, a uh, a lowly, a lowly faith, faith thing, you know, with some sort of lucky charm. Once you take that into your house, it's going to pull you down. He brings in first the pestle, that's the, sto the stone image, then the masecha, that's the molten image. And then it gets, he makes a whole shrine in his house, and then he makes an aphod. Now, what's an aphod? An aphod is a kind of apron that the Kohenim wore and the Levium wore in the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash, it's a, it's a special priestly garment. So he had one made, kind of at first, for his son and Trophim. Now Trophim is a whole discussion. Like what are Trophim? Briefly, we saw Trophim in the story of Lavan and Rachel. And at that point, we saw that the Trophim seemed to be a form of divination. Lavan uses the, the trophim to foresee the future. And they must have had some kind of human form because in the story of David and Michal, so Michal, when David runs away from Shaul, Michal puts trophim in the bed instead of David, so they'll think that he's there, which is bizarre because why does David have this in his house? So it's hard to understand the whole thing of the trophim. And if you, you know, look into the sources, the Kabbalistic sources of how they made the Trophim, really bizarre, really bizarre, like, you know, really black magic. So, you know, this is one of the things that the Ralbag talks about, that people use these forms of idol worship and black magic in attempts to connect to God. It's very, very problematic. And it's something we have to think about. And one of our lessons we should think about is it, it says, Tamim you should be wholesome and pure with God. And one of our problems is that we, we're never satisfied. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know, is this a good thing to do? Is this a bad thing to do? Am I going in the right path? Am I not going in the right path? And we want to find some way to connect to, how do we know that? And Hashem says, well, just have some faith. Have some faith instead of going into you know, these wrong directions. 
So this whole question of how much here is good intentions and how much here is just out and out idolatry, it's very not clear. And we could say, judging from this first section, that Micha, his mother, the way they talk, first of all, you know, Baruch Benil Hashem, Hashem. And then it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to have a pestle and a masecha and a phototrophim, and we'll make this, you know, little Ephraim guy, he's going to be a Kohen. You see how it all falls apart. And you see that we, we have a, a combination of people who are so, they talk in this high, high-minded manner, and yet they're, they're, you know, he steals from her, from her, and and she's like completely off in what she wants to do, and it's just, a, it's just a big balagan. Okay, and the reason for that is pasuk vav by Israel, Everybody did what they thought was good, and um, yeah, the the sad part is like these people really, they really think that they're serving God. And that's, that seems to be hard to argue with. If you, we look at the next section, the second section of the story introduces us to a new character, Pasuk Zayed. A very, very difficult Pasuk. There was a, a youth from Beis Lechem Yehuda, and he was from the family of Yehuda, and he was a Levi, and he lived there. Okay, so, you know, the Gemara has one whole discussion about, like, is he a lady, is he a Yehuda? What are we doing here? Who is he? So the simplest explanation of that, and Rashi says, uh, <coughs> Rashi says he was a lady from the mother, but this is hard to understand because, you know, the lady should come from the father and the Yehuda should come from the mother. But we, we do see that he doesn't have his own place. And if we go back to Sefer Yoshua in chapter 21, we see, I should have opened that for you. We see that the, maybe I'll just read it in my mouth. But we see that the, the Levium had 48 cities all over the country and they all had different places where they lived. And they didn't have a, an orderly kind of, um, you know, all the be in one place. God, um, uh, Yaakov says, <coughs> let them be divided, Israel, <coughs> and they are divided. And <coughs> you see that the sons of Aaron, of Kahat, from the sons of Levi, of which this youth is, he had, they came from Hebron and HaYehuda. So every Levi was attached to a different city and to a different area. And apparently the family of this particular Levi were in Yehuda, right? Pasuk Chet. And the, the man, first he was a youth and now he's a man. We're gonna find out a lot of things about this guy. He goes to Beit Lechem Yehuda to go somewhere, whatever he'll find. And he's traveling and he comes to the house of Micha. So we need a map here. Okay. So here is Beit Lechem, all the way in the south. This is the territory of Yehuda. 
And this is an itinerant lady, and he's moving up north, and he comes to this whole area as Harafrayim, and this is where Shiloh is, the Mishkan, and Micha is living on Harafrayim, and somewhere here, not far from Shiloh, he's established his shrine. And this lady is looking for work. And one of the sad things for Levium is that they didn't always have an established livelihood. A lady, you know, he worked in the Mishkan, if he did, if he worked, he helped people. They were supposed to be teachers. They were supposed to be preachers. But this guy doesn't have a way to make a living. And he's just, you know, you know, like traveling around to look for a place to be. And he comes to have some Micha. Now he's no longer Micha, it's only Micha. The, the lady says to him, you know, pretty straight, he says, uh, I come from Beislacham Yehuda, I'm a lady. So he's right away putting himself out there. This is what I do, I do lady stuff. I'm a, um, I'm a teacher, I'm a lady, and I'm going to live wherever I find myself. Now, <coughs> it's very interesting because um, we see here an interaction that in an ordinary uh, sense is, it's extremely kind. Stay with me. And one of the things that the Chazal say about Micha, right? And then I, I actually had some trouble getting all the sources here. Uh, okay, so one of the things it says here, this uh, Rabbi Nathan said, it is three meal, three miles from Gareb where Micha was to Shiloh, close enough for the smoke from God's altar in Shiloh and the smoke from Micha's idol to mingle with each other. In other words, they were so close to Shiloh, it was, it was pathetic, you're setting up a shrine, and you have the Mishkan right there, right? When the ministering angels wished to do away with Micha, the Holy One said, let him be since his bread is available to wayfarers. I'm gonna go back to the text here. This is a very famous um, discussion of Micha. There is a discussion in the Gemara there that says, who are the people, everyone has a share of the world to come. And then the Gemara starts listing people who don't have a share of the world to come. You don't want to know about that list, but Micha is not on it. And the people who are on it are generally people like Yeruba Ben Nevat, who are Chote Machti, people who sin and caused others to sin. Now, Micha, by creating a house of idol worship, he's a sinner. And by having other people come and worship there, he is a person who causes other people to sin. So he should not be getting a share in the world to come. And the angels come to God and say, What's with this guy? And Hashem says, it's a very, very interesting and amazing Gemara. The, the Chazal say, because he was Machnes Archim, he was a um, hospitable person. He let people in and he fed them. Because of that, he gets a share of the world to come. And there's another lesson for us to remember that the great mitzvot of Ben Adam Habera. So if we look at this story, and I said at the beginning that the story, we could kind of define it as a story very, very much that's a problem with Ben Adam uh, Lamako. We do see 
that the Ben Adol Mechaveira was not so bad. I mean, he starts off by stealing from his mom, which is not so nice. Well, okay, maybe he just needed it for groceries. I don't know. But you see that he's a kind person and he tells the lady, come in. But he does have something in mind for him, Pasuk Ted. Why don't you stay with me and you will be a father figure and a Kohen? Okay, and Micha said, listen, I have an idea. You're looking for work. You could be my Kohen. I've got a whole little shrine going on here. I have a whole temple. And you're a Levi, so you could be a Kohen. And you see, again, this sort of, you know, confusion, like if you're a Levi, you're a Levi. You're not a Kohen. But for Micha, in Micha's mind, it's a step up from his son, who is a Yisrael. And if you stay with me, he offers him 10 pieces of silver for a year, but he won't need a lot of money because I'm going to pay for your clothes and your food. Levi's like, okay, sounds like a plan. Levi is a little bit of an opportunist. It's okay. Now, <clears throat> we have to explore this further. Let's go on. And the Levi wanted to stay with the man. He, they're connecting, you know, um, the Levi and Micha. And the youth became like one of his children, which is like interesting. If you follow the, the wording here, be for me a father. And then he treats him like a son. So again, we see the twistedness, the confusion. I want you to be my religious leader, but you're a kid, so I'll treat you like one of my kids, but like you're going to be my authority. What do you mean? Like, is he going to be a father? Is he going to be a son? He's going to be a Cohen. He's a lady. And he becomes like one of his sons. And Micha initiated the lady into his service. Right, and by the Kohen, and the kid became the Kohen by and he's in the house of Micha. So now we have to figure this out. Like what actually is happening here? Is the Levi? Um, what what does he want to do here? And why does he do this? Now, if you look at the questions that we have on these the story, it gets a little crazier. Let's look at Yid Gimel. By Yomer Micha, Ata Yadati, Ki Yetzir Hashem Li, Ki Hayali Halevi Lekohe. And Micha says, Now I know that God is will be good to me. God loves me because He gave me a Levi to be a Kohe. Micha interprets the coming of this Levi as a gift from God for His little shrine. He interprets it as a sign of God's love and God's acceptance, because he's done this great thing for Micha. So again, we are watching here a couple of, of things that we have to be aware of in terms of our, our lessons. Number one, number one, the environment is very, very important. If you follow the deterioration here of this story, we start off with Micha going to his mother like, no, take the money and I don't want to do this. I'm going to the redacted mob and he's reluctant. 
And then he agrees and he puts the idol in his house. Now he doesn't want to, he starts off not wanting to, but then he gets into it. The, the pull of the corruption pulls him away from the right path. And then he makes an aphod, and then he makes a trophim, and then he has his son there, and he's doing this jolly thing. And then he's like, he seems like he's not, you know, he doesn't start off as a terrible person. And then when he has, he's very, very nice to the kid, calm, and he treats him like one of his family. Oh my gosh, I have now a lady to be a Kohen. So you see that he's gone from, you know, uh, from bad to worse, and the, the presence of the idol in his home has taken him completely off the path. And we've gotten the situation where the kid, the Levi, he, he starts off in Pasuket, he went. Where did he go? Rashi says, Ahar Atato. He, he followed his plan, right? He went according to Micha, but in Pasuket, it's already by Yoel Halevi Lashet. The Levi didn't start life as an idol worshiper either. He's a Levi, right? He's He's been doing lady stuff, but now he comes and he gets involved with the Savodasara and he becomes a coin for the Avodasara. So how do we understand this? Okay, we, we go into the next story, which is a continuation of Pesamika, but we have to try to figure out what there is to know about this Mika person. So there's a number of Midrashim that I wanted to show you. And I, I had some trouble finding them in the in the text. Let, let, let's start here. Okay. All right. This is from Shmos, okay? We have a similar situation with another Levi, right? And this Levi comes to Midian, right? And he helps the daughters of Yisrael. And Yisrael, and they come and they tell their father, like, you know, this guy helped us at the well. And Yisrael says, well, why don't you bring him back to feed him? And in Pasuk Kabbalah, Now the word Vayoel is very unusual. And generally speaking, when you learn Tanakh, you have to pay attention to similarities in language. If it says here, right, uh, we should right away be thinking, oh, that sounds like Moshe, right? Uh, no, 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 should be here. But wait a minute, we had that phrase also in Pesamicha, in the story here, right? And he was from So another connection to Moshe. We should be, our antennas should be up. Like, what the heck? Why are we comparing him to Moshe? Right? And then, right? Um, here, later on in the story, when he's at the burning bush, right? He says, Mazabiadecha, right? And he says, right, Mazabiadecha. There's other 
references here to motion that actually I can't show you now because that's in chapter 18. In other words, in chapter 18, the second half of the Pesalicha story, we have other references that uh, the, the word halom, which is also a very Moshe representation. So why are we being made uh, connecting this guy with Moshe? So we really, I wanted you to see it in this edition because Robinson, we can't hear you. Yeah, you're on mute. Uh, can you hear me now? Yep. Thank okay. you. Okay, so Pasuk Lamed, in chapter 18, at the end of the story, we're told that the name of the slavey was Yehonatan, and his father was Gershom, and his grandfather was Menashe, but the nun of Menashe is hanging in the air because really he was the grandson of Moshe, of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is extremely disturbing. The grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu is this lady. Now, why is the nun hanging there? Because we are considering the honor of Moshe Rabbeinu, and because he's acting like Benashe, the evil idol-worshiping king, so we're putting the nun in there. Okay, so I wanna show you the medrash here. There's a few medrash in here. We have another few minutes for the medrash. Uh, okay. <clears throat> the children of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Menashe, he and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites. This is a. Uh, <clears throat> but was Gershom? I I took this particular copy, and I had a hard copy, which is a translation of the Gemaras and the Medrash, just because uh, it was an easier way to show to you. Uh, was Gershom the son of Anasha? Was he not, in fact, the son of Moshe? Weren't the sons of Moshe Gershom and Eliezer? Okay, I'm going to leave the rest of this. Uh, skip that a little bit. Um, because he acted wickedly like King Menashe, scripture assigns his ancestry to Menashe. The letter Nun to Menashe is suspended above the line, indicating that if deserving, he will spoke, be spoken of as a descendant of Moshe if undeserving as a descendant of Menashe. 
Okay, so we have this very, very uh, strange, you know, um, origin story of this, this Levi was a grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu. How could this be? So, okay. When the Danites reached the house of Micha, this is chapter 18, they recognized Yonatan as a lady and they asked him, who brought thee hither? What does that do in this place? And what has that here? These um, inquiries, the Danites meant, I do not send the Moshe Rabbeinu. If you see this in the Hebrew, all right, <coughs> if you see this in the Hebrew, these are the key words that I mentioned to you. What are you doing, Halom? What are you doing, uh, Sham? All the things that are told about Moshe. In other words, the, in, in chapter 18, the people of Don that we're going to meet next week recognize this Levi. And if you go back to what I showed you in Joshua, it's because the Levium of his family lived in their area. The Yehuda is very close to Don. They have met him. They know him. So wait a minute. What are you doing here as a priest to Avodah Zarah? Aren't you Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson? And he said, I have a tradition from my grandfather's house that a man should hire himself out for Avodah Zarah rather than be dependent on fellow mortals. Okay, this actually works much better in Hebrew, right? Here. That's our keyword. These are keywords that were used about Moshe Beno. Amu lovely Moshe, God said, aren't you a, son, a grandson of Moshe? And we said about him, I'll take my hello, right? What is that, that staff in your hand? And how could you be doing this? How could you be a komel of Odazara, a marlahen? I learned from my grandfather that a person should always rather be hired for Vodazara and not go out to beg and not need to be supported by others. The Husabar, and this is how the Gemara explained that he thought Vodazara Mamish, that he should be better to be an idolatrous priest than to come ask people for help. But that wasn't the intention at all. The intention was that he shouldn't do avodah zara. Zara is strain, work that's strange for you. The Rav Kahana, Rav said, right? Flay a carcass in the shuk and get paid for it and don't go asking people for money and don't say that's beneath me. In other words, according to the Gemara, the problem that me, uh, that the Levi had, Yonatan, the Levi has, is that he misinterprets the teaching of his great uh, esteemed grandfather. In other words, the Gemara is saying, when we talk about a Bodhisattva, there's two types of a Bodhisattva. There's a Bodhisattva, which is idol worship, and there's a Bodhisattva, that's strange work. And so don't ever say, I can't do that. I can't be a, you know, fill in the blank. I can't be a bricklayer. I can't be a tanner. And they use the expression of tanner. Now, if you're flaying carcasses, if you have to take leather 
off of a dead animal. So that's really gross. It's smelly, it's bloody, it's dirty. You say, well, no, I can't do that. I, I, you know, someone needs to support me. And so the, the intention of this saying is that a person should be conscious to make an honest living rather than to come on to other people. However, however, the Levy misinterprets it and says it's better to be an idol worshiper. Now, one more medrash I want to show you. Hold like one more minute. Okay, because it's it's very telling, right? <clears throat> the sages asked from Shmuel Bar Nachman, how is it that Jonathan, although a priest for idolatry, had such a long life, he replied, because Jonathan made a mockery out of his idol. In other words, this Jonathan didn't believe in all this stuff. He just did it. <coughs> when the man came to offer a bull, a lamb, or a goat, right? He said, Jonathan said, well, what are you doing? How can this thing help you? It can't hear or see or speak. It can't do anything to you. So the man said, what am I supposed to do? So he says, why don't you bring me some flour and eggs and we'll put it before the idol and I'm going to try to get you uh, a favorable response. So the man comes, he brings the flour and the eggs and he goes and, and Yonatan eats it. <laughs> he makes himself an omelet and a little pancake and he eats it. In other words, the Medvish is trying to explain to us that Yonatan was given a little bit of a pass because he didn't believe anything he was doing. He was just doing it because he wanted to make a living. Once an impudent fellow came and when Yonatan said the same thing to him, he said, if the idol can't help, what are you doing here? And Yonatan said, this is how I make, this is how I make a living. You know, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. So we have a very interesting character, this lady. We're going to find out more about him in chapter 18. But you see that we are having a, a complicated story where we see people who are starting off in a very uh, proper manner and they, they, they have good intentions, but things go downhill. So what we learn from here is, number one, um, you, could, you could do all kinds of jobs, but that doesn't mean that you should go against the Torah. And number two, when you're in a bad environment, it's going to have a bad influence on you and something to look out for because the more you're with that, and I think today, even though we don't really have idol worship, I think we have a lot of bad environments. So I think we can think very easily of environments we should avoid and problems that we get when we are pulled after um, evil stuff.